Good morning. My name is Taylor Reevely. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and thank you for your prayers earlier for uh, the church plant in Oregon City. I thought it'd be helpful this morning just to begin with a few updates about what is going on there. And um, the first question I get as we talk about planting a church in Oregon City is, why Oregon City? And the answer is that we believe the opportunity for kingdom impact is huge in Oregon City. Not because we think we're the only right church model or denomination that has all the answers, or even because we think everyone in Oregon City should come to uh, an Oregon City congregation, but because we think that our engagement and our participation with God and His work in Oregon City will be better because we have an outpost there. The second question I get is, how's it going? And um, I usually joke and say, have you seen my face on a billboard in Oregon City? It's going great. But in reality, the work that's going on right now is we are praying. It's going great. We're, we are praying. We moved our life over there. Uh, we shop there, eat there, play there, uh, run there, visit neighbors there. But the real work that's going on right now is we are praying. And then there's a million other questions like, well, who's going to be a part of the, the plant team, and, and where are you going to meet, and when are you going to launch? And the answer to that question is the same. We're praying. And when we first started planning to plant a church in Oregon City, one of the concerns we had was that people going with the church plant would have all the fun, or at least that we would think they had all the fun. That God would only work in a church plant. When in reality, those who are going to plant a church in Oregon City are doing nothing different than all of us as God's people are to be doing. And so it shouldn't be any more fun. That's my sales pitch. And so we set out to do something to address that misperception in 2022. We set out to help each one of us identify ourselves as kingdom people. We've called it the kingdom initiative. You see, the harvest isn't riper in Oregon City than it is here or anywhere else. It's ripe all over the world. And so our aim with the kingdom initiative is to help us take small steps toward being kingdom citizens wherever we are, all the time. And if you've noticed by now, each, uh, each month begins with an emphasis to pray. In fact, uh, last Wednesday's Kingdom Initiative prompt was to participate in our monthly day of prayer and fasting, a day we set aside the first Wednesday each month uh, to commit ourselves to earnestly pray. And last Wednesday, there was a 24-hour prayer room at each of our uh, campuses where uh, we signed up and people would pray for an hour and we were praying all day. There was a station in that room set up to write down names of people, of specific names, of specific people who do not yet know Jesus and put them on the wall so that others might pray for them. By the time I got into the room, there were 63 names on the wall. And in that room, for those people in the lives and families and hurts and challenges they represent, we prayed. I share this with you for two reasons. The first is to encourage you to pray. 
to continue to persist in prayer. The second is to highlight for you just an underlying principle uh, in our philosophy of ministry here at New Life Church, that kingdom work begins with prayer. If you're going to be a kingdom person, you're going to be a praying person. If we're going to expect anything good and lasting and supernatural to to take place, it will begin with prayer. And one place that conviction comes from is the next passage in our journey through Matthew's gospel at the end of Matthew chapter 9. Would you please load your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The distilled instruction for us in this passage is this. As you follow King Jesus, his heart of compassion and his overwhelming mission will drive you to pray. As you follow Jesus, His compassion will compel you. His mission will overwhelm you. Therefore, pray earnestly. Now in the context of what's happening in Matthew's gospel at this point, we're at a turn. And these verses serve as a transition for us. In, in Matthew 5 through 7, the chapters 5 through 7, the kingdom was announced. It was proclaimed on the mountain. Jesus went up and described a new and better way to be human as citizens of God's kingdom. In the previous chapters, 8 and 9, the kingdom was enacted as Jesus walked around bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the lives of real life sinners and sufferers. And now, in chapter 10, the kingdom expands as Jesus delegates his authority to the disciples to do what Jesus does. And these verses here at the end of chapter 9 serve a dual purpose, both as a summary of the ministry of Jesus and a foreshadowing of the ministry of the disciples. What has Jesus been doing? He's been teaching. He's been proclaiming, and He's been healing. Look at what the disciples do. Just glance at the road ahead in Matthew 10. In verse 1, it says, He called the twelve to Himself and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The exact same phrase is in verse 35. And in verse 7 of chapter 10, He commands the disciples to proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the same proclamation of Jesus. And the starting point for this mission, the starting point for prayer, 
is the compassion that drove Jesus to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the real lives of people around him. As you follow Jesus, his compassion will compel you, just as it compelled him. Look with me closely at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The first thing we see in 36 is that Jesus observes. He saw the crowds. When was the last time you went people watching? Not in like a creepy way, not plotting anything, not judging anyone, just people watching, observing other humans. Strangers. And all you know about them is how they dress and the expression on their face and how fast they're walking. But you don't know why they're walking that way or dressed that way or have that expression on their face. You don't know the hurts or the challenges underneath. What is your gut reaction when you observe the crowds? In verse 36, it appears Jesus observes the crowds and his gut response is different than mine would be. I observe a crowd and I get overwhelmed easily. I'm an introvert. I see a lot of needs and I think, I, I don't even know where to start. start to maybe even get impatient or frustrated, like, go figure it out. But Jesus responds in a different kind. Look at this next part of verse 36. It says, he had compassion on them. What is compassion? What is it that Jesus is feeling for the crowds he sees? Now, the verb to have compassion, it contains um, one of Pastor Tim's favorite words, splachna, which literally means gut, or figuratively means the center of your being. So, compassion is this gut response. It's a feeling that you can't shake. It's the ruin your day kind of feeling. And one of the things that distinguishes compassion from something fairly parallel, pity, is that compassion is motivated to act. Pity allows me to just think about someone. Compassion drives me in my thought of them to act for their good. In Matthew's writing, uh, compassion moves to do something about the physical needs of people. Jesus has compassion for the crowds and he does something about it. His compassion compels him. Now, as Jesus' people watched, what was it that drove him to compassion? It says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. As he looked on the crowds, he saw beyond their physical appearances, the way that they presented themselves and saw their their real self, their true condition. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You might be familiar with sheep, 
You might, you might know that sheep are fairly unintelligent animals, fairly defenseless animals. That if there is no shepherd, the sheep are vulnerable to attacks from every kind. And in fact, they can't even feed themselves. They're not very good at foraging unless a shepherd were to lead them beside still waters and in green pastures. Shepherd or sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in danger, who are oblivious to the danger and have no resource to solve their problem. But you may not be as familiar with Ezekiel 34, which I believe Jesus has in mind as he describes this crowd. In verse 2, God speaks of Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Ezekiel 34 begins with God's scathing indictment against the shepherds of Israel, her rulers and spiritual leaders who were instituted by God, given to the people that they might lead God's people in the way of God, in the blessing of God. And they have abandoned their post for their own profit. The sheep in Ezekiel 34 are, in every sense, harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd, just as they are in Matthew 9. They're hungry with no one to feed them. They're hurt with no one to heal them. They're lost with no one to find them. And then in Ezekiel 34, God addresses the sheep. In verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And in verse 15, I myself, will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And in verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, Ezekiel was written half a century after David's life and death, so the exiles, the audience of Ezekiel's letter, would have been looking for someone who looked like David. Maybe they would have been looking for a son of David, one of his offspring. 
They probably would have looked for someone, a shepherd perhaps, who was also a king perhaps. Matthew took great pains at the beginning of his gospel to outline for us that Jesus is the son of David and now in his writing and through the rest of scriptures is revealed as the great shepherd and the king of kings. He is the fulfillment to God's promise to his sheep to comfort them and save them. And what has Jesus been doing all along now in Matthew 8 and 9 after the kingdom has come and is being enacted? He's been seeking the lost, bringing back the stray, binding up the injured, strengthening the weak, just as this shepherd Now, Jesus sees people as they really are and identifies something beyond the surface, a need that only He can fulfill. And He is moved by com- to compassion for people. Maybe you today are standing in that crowd that Jesus is observing and you feel harassed and helpless. And you catch the glance of Jesus, people watching. And you wonder, how does, he, how does he perceive me here in this crowd? You need to know he does not look with disdain or disgust, but with compassion towards you. He is moved towards you. Maybe you feel today as though a sheep without a shepherd might feel. Jesus will be for you a shepherd the shepherd who seeks you and is ready to save. Or maybe you've moved from the crowd that Jesus is observing here to the crowd that is now behind him and is following him. Maybe you're one of the disciples standing there next to Jesus looking out at the crowd. And you see the crowds, but what do you see? What is your gut reaction to what you see? Consider the, the, the variety of the needs and what do you feel? There are only two reactions to the feeling that you feel in your gut. The first reaction is you can ignore it and pretend it isn't there. Ignore the crowds, ignore their needs, and get on with, keep your head down and get on with your life. The second option or reaction is to simply feel overcome by your inadequacy, overwhelmed by the need, overwhelmed with even where to start. And we need to be honest at this point of how we perceive the crowd. Christians, the church today is not famous for its compassion. It's not famous for its humility. I I know many people who are not Christian, who are not standing behind Jesus, but are just in the crowd, and who've given their lives in compassion 
for those next to them to serve in humanitarian and healthcare, to teach, basically to do Jesus-y things, to, to do the teaching and to do the healing in the world. And if that describes you this, this morning, that's the effort you're involved in and you don't have Jesus, then I want to invite you to a fuller way of making the world a better place, namely the way of Jesus. Well, on the other hand, there are, I know many Christians who would love nothing more than to buy a few acres in the country and just get away, not have to deal with it. It wasn't always this way. Churches were at the front lines forming universities and hospitals. And certainly, there are Christians all over the world who step into places that they have no need to step into simply out of compassion to care for the practical needs of others, bringing the truth of the good news of Jesus to bear. But somewhere along the way, our compassion was lost. Perhaps our pity wasn't lost, this pity that people have come to kind of characterize the kind of pity that nobody wants, the kind of pity that thinks, poor you, you're so messed up, you need Jesus, and then things will all get better when you get to heaven. That's pity. It just thinks that. As opposed to compassion that is consistent with Matthew's gospel, consistent with the compassion that Jesus has, who as he looks at the crowd says, thinks to himself, you might even look just fine. You may not even need my pity. But Jesus intends for you something so much better. He wants you to flourish in a holistic and eternal sense in ways that you may not have even imagined. May I show you? And then compassion steps in and acts. And it acts in the way of Jesus. What is that way? What is the work that compassion compels? Same work Jesus has been doing all along. In verse 35, teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing all sickness and all disease. Yes, Jesus heals. He steps in to meet the practical, physical needs of the crowd he has compassion for. Healthcare is a Jesus-like effort. Humanitarian efforts are Jesus-like in their work. But if those efforts are disconnected from the, the fuller healing that Jesus intends, the flourishing He desires for people, then they are found lacking. Because Jesus also teaches and proclaims the good news of the kingdom. The healing Jesus desires for this crowd He has compassion for is more than just physical, food, health, and security. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. The word gospel that is used in verse 35 means good news. What is the good news of the kingdom? Is the good news of the kingdom, you're a sinner, you need Jesus so you can go to heaven? Kind of sounds like pity. Or is it 
is that Jesus, his heart is bursting with compassion for you. He stands ready to welcome you and to heal your whole being that you might flourish in right relationship with God. You've noticed now in Matthew's account that when Jesus goes about healing people's physical illnesses, the phrase, your, your sins are forgiven, accompanies. He's not just bandaging symptoms. He is doing the work of the kingdom. He is enacting the kingdom. The spiritual kingdom of God becomes physical as people encounter Jesus and are transformed and healed by him. So kingdom work, as Jesus demonstrates, it meets the physical needs of others and the spiritual needs of others. Both. Admittedly, it'd be simpler to just kind of compartmentalize those. Some of us are really good with addressing the physical needs. Some of us are better at addressing the spiritual needs. But by demonstrating both of these together, Jesus is illustrating that kingdom living is holistic. It cannot be compartmentalized. And this is frustrating. I'm frustrated by it. Because all of a sudden, this little sliver that I thought I could manage became this big hole, and it's overwhelming. Well, I'm afraid that Jesus expects us to be overwhelmed. That as we see him healing and teaching, bringing the gospel, the good news to bear in the lives of real life sinners and sufferers, and calls us, invites us to do the same, that we would be overwhelmed by the task at hand. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I think there are three reasons, three, three reasons why the mission of Jesus overwhelms us. His compassion compels us, but now this mission as we see it, we've, we can't not do, we can't, we can't do nothing. It overwhelms us. And the first overwhelming factor is that we underestimate Jesus' vision for his kingdom. We do not see the harvest that he sees. I can imagine the disciples hearing these words, uh, Jesus saying the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, and looking at the crowd that is clearly in reference here and saying, okay, there's about, about 120 of them. There's 12 of us. It's 10 each. Let's do it. And what Jesus has in mind is a harvest beyond what he can see. Now, Jesus uh, does not spell this out, but he's speaking figuratively of people who are ripe for inclusion in the kingdom. They're gathered as the laborers in the, in the harvest preach the good news and heal every disease and sickness. We read this passage around the dinner table this week, and uh, I was trying to explain to my daughters what a harvest was, because we don't have a big crop. We have like a string of raspberries. And they know raspberries, and they know what it's like to harvest raspberries one at a time. 
I said, now imagine if we just let the raspberries go and we waited patiently and they were all ripe at once. And we didn't just have one row, we had a hundred rows of raspberries. How would you feel about going out to pick those raspberries until it was done? Certainly be overwhelming. Because the scope of the kingdom is much broader than our little perspective. And I want to encourage you to see what Jesus sees. To see people as they really are and be be driven to compassion, yes, but to see an overwhelming mission. As you go about your day, you see hundreds of people. You pass hundreds of vehicles full of people. Do you see a harvest? People ready for inclusion in the kingdom. When you return to Portland and you're flying over the Portland skyline and you see all the lights illuminated, do you see a harvest? When you watch the news and you're concerned about the events and the details, do you see a harvest? The harvest is plentiful. In fact, it is overwhelmingly plentiful. The second reason that we are overwhelmed by Jesus' mission is implied by the first. The needs are many. There's no shortage of needs. As you multiply people, you don't multiply potential. You multiply problems. And if we're honest again, I've got my own problems. I've got my own things I want Jesus to fix in my life. Probably be better for me to just take care of this before I deal with anything else. And when I hear about someone's need, uh, emotional need, spiritual need, physical need, financial need, relational need, we just push to the point of tipping. I just can't do enough. I just can't actually affect enough change for it to be worth it. I don't know where to start. And so, I, I, I can't take any more on. Yeah, the, the, the harvest Jesus has in mind is greater than we imagine. The needs Jesus has in mind are also greater than we imagine. And the third overwhelming factor makes them worse. The laborers are few. Charles Spurgeon, the theologian and uh, known as the Prince of Preachers, said, not the preachers, but the laborers are few. Not the talkers, but the laborers are few. The patient, plodding, resolute, disinterested, industrious toilers who really go in for winning souls for Christ, the men and women who do work for God and do not play at Christian service as some do, making it a kind of amusement to go and do a little good now and then, it is these laborers who are few. You know the difference between a dock laborer and a farm laborer, he says, and the gentleman who takes a tool in his hand just for a pastime now and then. We could continue, perhaps, not the tweeters that are few, but the laborers. Not the YouTube commenters that are few, but the laborers. 
It's not the meme sharers or the fundraisers or the vision stirrers or the humanitarian workers, but the laborers who are few. Kingdom laborers act on Jesus' authority as agents of healing in the lives of real life sinners and sufferers and proclaim to them the good news of the kingdom. So we're overwhelmed. Great. What do you do when you get overwhelmed? When the mission of God seems impossibly huge, what do you do? Well, let's be honest with ourselves again. I think there are three options of what to do when you feel overwhelmed. And the first one is to earnestly work. You hear about the expanse of the kingdom, about the abundance of the harvest, the shortage of the workers, and you say, we can do it. Let's get to it. And so you try a little harder, you give a little more, and you drive home this morning feeling one of two things, self-righteous because you're doing more than someone else, or guilty because you're not doing enough. And what you hear in this is another law saying, do, 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 do more, work harder, be better. And that's not here. That's not the point, that your work. Can achieve. Jesus' point is that the mission is bigger than your work could ever achieve. So there's another response to feeling overwhelmed, and that's not of earnest work, but of frenzied activity. We don't really know where to start, so we just kind of start at everything. We got a social justice issue over here, let's get involved. A political campaign over here, let's get involved. We got humanitarian need over here, let's get involved. VBS over here, let's get involved. I don't know, I'm just kind of hoping that something sticks in my life amounts to contributing towards Jesus' work in the world. And it just might be that we are spread so thin to have no effect at all. So there's a third option. We've, we filter this, right? We, fil- we start, okay, can I do the work? Mm, I can try a lot of things. Mm. The third option is I can respond to this feeling of being overwhelmed by Jesus' mission with paralysis. And this is likely our default response to the overwhelming mission of Jesus. I don't know where to start, so I won't. I don't know. I don't have a relationship with anyone in that crowd. I don't even know. I don't even have an in, so I won't try. We don't know how to heal. We don't want to be inconvenienced. It sounds now like this life of following Jesus is one that will never have any rest because the work is never done, so it's easier to just Let myself be disheartened and paralyzed, and we don't do anything. I said there were three, and I lied. There are four options. Jesus, in verse 38, offers the fourth, and that is to pray. 
He says in verse 38, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in His harvest. Notice a few things in the text here. It begins with a therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore, it connects that this response to pray is the natural response to feeling overwhelmed by the mission of God, being compelled by the compassion of God. The first response, the natural conclusion is not earnest work. It's not your action item today but it is earnest prayer. Prayer is when we talk to God, communicating, even demonstrating our dependence on Him to do what only He is able to do. And because the compassion we feel is great, it compels us. The mission is overwhelming and the stakes are so high, the prayer intensifies and it earns this word, earnest. You also need to notice that someone owns this harvest. Your prayers are to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into His harvest. Who would be more invested in His own harvest than the farmer himself? He demonstrates this. Because the first person to get out working in the harvest is God's Son, Jesus. It's exactly what He's been doing in Matthew 8 and 9. And so as you participate in the labor in the kingdom, you are in good company. The one who owns the harvest will see it through and he will enlist more workers until the work is done. Now, one of the reasons that the, there's a need for more laborers is, yes, that I can't be in all the places at one time. Jesus' vision for the harvest is, is global. But the other reason is that we need more laborers is that I do not have influence or even a way to engage or step into um, many places. This verse came to mind last night as Andy and I were sitting at Corner 14 in Oregon City. We were watching people walk back and forth, hundreds of people there, live music. Uh, we were outside and... I was thinking to myself, how could, I, how could I engage here? Where would I begin? If I were to begin, where would I begin? I didn't know where to begin. I'm not an insider there by any means. I'm the new guy. I'm not a very interesting new guy. Kind of a boring new guy. That... And it struck me, hey, I know somebody who works here, who follows Jesus, you know what really would be great is if there were more workers right here who followed Jesus, who were in this work together. Maybe that's me. I'd be willing. But there needs to be more. It's not on me. We read the news of millions of refugees in Europe considering the crowds, considering the needs, move to compassion for them overwhelmed because I don't even know what to do about it. So we start to pray that God would send laborers into His harvest.
Jesus' compassion compels us. His mission overwhelms us, and so we pray. Now, what happens when we pray? Uh, Turn with me to the next verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, to see what happens. Now, how much time has passed between the end of Matthew 9 and the start of Matthew 10? I don't know. Matthew doesn't really like downtime, so probably not much. But I imagine enough time for the disciples to hear Jesus, to see His compassion, to see the crowd, and to hear His words and say, we will pray to the Lord to send more harvest. Please send somebody. And then Matthew 10 begins. And He called to Him His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In verse 6, these twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right away their prayers are answered as Jesus sends them. God, we need more workers in the harvest. Please send somebody. Have you considered that someone else might be praying that and you might be the answer to that prayer also? Are you willing to be the answer to this prayer? The disciples must have been very surprised because it's one thing. It's relatively comfortable to pray that God would send somebody. It's another thing altogether to hear Him say to you, Go. But the significance of what happens here in the turn between Matthew 9 and Matthew 10 cannot be missed. The laborers in the field that Jesus sends, these disciples, they're not a new elite model of disciple. They're not the optional luxury trim model of disciple. No, they're, they're just regular basic ordinary disciples. They're not a higher class as though some of us get to do more stuff and the rest of us kind of just go about our life. This is what it means to be a disciple, is that you are sent by Jesus just as Jesus himself has been sent. This is what citizens of the kingdom do. This is is what it means to follow Jesus. You do what Jesus does, compelled by His compassion, overwhelmed by His mission. You pray, and then you go. This isn't a new law you're hearing today. This isn't a burden to throw on your back. This is a call to be who you are. You follow Jesus, so follow Jesus. Perhaps... This is what makes it hard to pray this prayer. In the back of our minds, we know that He's sending us. But if you're a Jesus follower, His compassion will compel you. Yes, His mission will overwhelm you and it will drive you to pray. So would you do that with me now? Heavenly Father, we, conf- we confess that we need your help working in our hearts, transforming our eyes and our longings and desires to see and respond to the crowd around us as Jesus sees and responds to us. 
And God, we confess that we don't know where to start. We want to follow you. And so right now, we just confess that we're going to pray. That we are going to ask, Lord, please send more workers. That the harvest might be brought in. That people might experience and encounter the flourishing that Jesus desires as they meet him. Help us in your name. Amen.